When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agriculture podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. I'm your host, Wendell Shum, and my guest today is Randall Schwarzentruber. Randall is the CEO and co-founder of Bin Sentry, an agricultural internet of things technology. Randall, welcome to the show. Wendell, good morning. It's great to be here. Excellent. Okay, so, and when we were doing our sound check, I did ask you specifically to spell your your name for me, and you started spelling Schwarzentruber, but I only needed you to go partway through, but um, <laughs> that was pretty good. Because um, you sell Swartz and you spell Swartz and Trooper differently than than other people do. Yeah, um, I, I, we spell Swartz and Trooper S C H W A R, <laughs> and there's a lot of people out there that spell it S W A R T Z, and continue on for the remainder of the 14 or 16 letters, depending. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't long enough, so you added the the C H. What is the difference, Randall? I'm sure there's some cultural significance to that. To be honest, I don't really know. Um, it's German, um, and, and I've asked a lot of different German people who know a lot more about German than I do uh, what exactly it means. I know that Swartz, I believe, is black, uh, and then Truber is sort of the part where a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not really sure what that means. There's been forest, <laughs> there's been grape, there's been night. Um, so I tend to, to prefer the black night one because it sounds pretty awesome, but I'm not sure if that's technically correct or not. Right, that's a slightly more exciting than just meaning the geographical region that is the Black Forest region of Germany. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's sort of one that a lot of people tend towards, um, which I, I suppose that's okay. It's just not quite as cool. Speaking of cool, the Internet of Things, it's just cool right now. What, what does that even mean, Internet of Things? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it is a trendy topic right now, and it's certainly gaining traction in the technological sphere. Um, but Internet of Things, it's made a lot more complex than it needs to be by a lot of people. Really, put simply, it's just uh, interconnected low-cost sensors that are tasked to do uh, chores that you know are mundane or difficult or costly to do. Uh, and basically, we employ a network of sensors to do that on our behalf so that we can gather data that is useful in some way in another area. So it's putting sensors to work for humans to do mundane tasks, uh, and they're all interconnected and connected to the Internet to send that data back to us making our life better and easier and somehow we still don't have flying cars yeah <laughs> although there has been efforts there have been efforts and i'm looking forward to that um right there yet maybe that'll be the next thing bin century puts our, our hands to well let's focus on the current rollout that you've got going on tell us a little about bin century sure bin century started a couple years ago when i was talking to a feed mill owner who sort of expressed a need for a sensor that would basically let his mill know when feed bins on the farm were going below a certain percentage and he said if he had that notification it would enable him at the mill to operate a whole bunch more efficiently because then he wouldn't have feed bins running out of feed he could plan his production scheduling better and he said that technology didn't really exist so of course i was intrigued by this i've always been a lifelong techie and, and someone who loves to work with electronics and computer programming and all of those types of things and uh, i've never been one to turn down a good challenge so Initially, I thought, well, he said this is a worldwide problem. And I thought, okay, well, if it's a worldwide problem, someone's probably solved it. Uh, went on the internet to, to search, and you know, I thought it would be a five-minute endeavor. As it turns out, I spent about three hours online that night looking for a solution and really didn't find any that I felt would adequately solve this particular feed mill owner's <laughs> challenge. 
which was surprising because, uh, I mean, in this modern day, you think, well, how many problems are there out there that really haven't been solved? Uh, as it turns out, this was sort of one of them, uh, and that was sort of the the beginning of bin century. Because you would think that this wouldn't be just a like an agriculture issue. I mean, any kind of like bulk handling facilities would be able to utilize this technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not really that there's not any way to measure bulk product inside of tanks. What I would say the challenge is, is that there's not a lot of really smart technologies that are also cost effective. And so you can, you can implement different technologies. Probably most people are familiar with load cells on feed bins or yep. like ultrasonic sensors in giant silos. And those things do work to a certain extent, but they're not smart enough to often, or oftentimes they're not smart enough to transmit that data offsite uh, and then make that data available elsewhere. And they're certainly not cost effective enough in most cases to warrant putting them across an entire fleet of feed bins. So feed mill could be servicing, you know, hundreds or thousands of feed bins. And um, so whatever solution existed or was created would have to be cost effective enough to, to warrant putting on that entire fleet of bins. Uh, and that's what was sort of lacking. Um, and so, so Randall, this is a good time to describe how the technology works. Well, we, we certainly had a task ahead of us trying to solve this problem because really it's been a problem that's existed for decades or so I've heard uh, after talking to people in the industry. Uh, and lots of efforts have been made in the past to try and solve this problem using lasers, uh, ultrasonic, fixed-point sensors, all of those types of things. Uh, and they all sort of have their own inherent flaws. Adding to that, obviously, the environment inside of a feed bin is, is a really difficult environment to make any type of sensor work. Yeah, dusty, dirty. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so really any type of sensor that you put inside of a feed bin um, or even a giant silo oftentimes will be overcome in a short period of time by the dust that's in there rendering that sensor uh, inoperative. So our task was to figure out how do we overcome that particular challenge and what's the best technology to use to actually measure how much product is inside of a bin. And at some point over the course of our year of prototyping, we eventually came to the point that we realized if we're going to solve this problem, none of the existing technologies out there are going to work. Uh, and we decided to try a new technology called LiDAR technology. Long story short, LiDAR technology is the technology you would most often find on self-driving cars. Uh, you've probably heard of the autonomous vehicles that are out there navigating our streets now. They don't have a driver. Uh, in that case, the driver is, in fact, the LiDAR sensor. So they have a spatial awareness of what's around them, which enables them to navigate. And we're using that same type of sensor inside of a feed bin. What exactly is that sensor? Is that like sending out a laser that bounces off of things? What yeah, does that it, do? It, it's light-based. So um, it, it basically emits light outside of the range of human eyesight, uh, and it sort of illuminates the inside of the bin. And because we know the speed of light, we can shoot that light out into the bin and calculate how long it takes to return. And we can actually pretty much determine how far away the surface of the feed is and to a certain degree what the surface of the feed looks like. Right. I like how you said we know the speed of light, as, as in like you and I know the speed of light, yeah, which is not exactly. completely accurate. No, that, that's not exactly true. I, I couldn't even tell you what it is. I know it's millions of kilometers. But, Somebody um, knows the speed of light, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they use the speed of light to determine how far away the surface of the feed is by calculating how long it takes to reflect back to the sensor. So we use that sensor inside of a feed bin. Uh, we combine that with a, a proprietary sort of wiper uh, on the lens of our sensor to keep the thing clean all the time. Uh, and then yep. after we've sort of grabbed that data from inside of the bin, we send that data over the cellular network back to our servers, and then we make that data available to all of our customers. And you've developed a product. because Okay, this is where Wallenstein Feeds comes into it, and we 
recognized that this was technology that was useful to us. And, you know, we got talking to you, realized you're quite a bright guy. And so we got involved and, and sort of like followed your progress through development. And now we're at the point where it's being installed in a bunch of bins. You've had to overcome a number of specific issues like farmers aren't too keen on you drilling holes in their bins so you came up with something that there's no modification to the bin you know like having something they get hardwired in creates a lot of issues so this is solar powered and doesn't require any you know hardwiring or any modifications to be done on the farm you really have come up with something that's pretty user friendly yeah um we have spent a ton of time sitting down with really anyone that will give us the opportunity over the course of the development progress we've just described that process as being very collaborative in nature because we've sort of taken the feedback that we've received from people at literally all levels of the industry and we've attempted to build the sensor that they wanted to see Uh, and we've asked them questions about what have failed in the past what have been the things that have prevented other sensors that have been uh, developed from being adopted widespread Uh, And we've tried to work around those sort of things. Uh, You mentioned that we don't modify the feed bin. There have been other sensors in the past that people have tried to market as a solution for this, but they required feed bin modification. And of course, farmers aren't too keen on that, understandably so. That sensor fails or that company goes under at some point in the future, you now have a giant hole in the side of your bin. So yeah, we've worked with people to try and really understand this challenge in depth. Uh, And then we've taken their feedback and we use that to ultimately form what our sensor would look like. And it was really uh, thanks in large part to some early contact that we had with Wallenstein, their willingness to let us work inside of their feed bins to prototype stuff that I think ultimately we came to to have this sensor that most people would agree is, is really very close to what you would want this to look like. Yeah. And from our standpoint, you know, we see this as something that's going to provide value to us in terms of efficiencies, knowing, you know, what's in somebody's bin in real time, but also something that offers our customers some real value and gives them another tool on their farm to be able to to monitor some important information. Now, Randall, so this is where you are today with this product. I'm curious, you've always been like sort of, a, would you say a tinkerer or, or interested in technology? Like, oh shoot, oh, yeah. I was just going to sort of date myself here and ask if you had a like a Meccano set when you were a kid, but I suppose when you were a kid, you were probably taking computers apart. Both <laughs> of those. To be, it's kind of funny because like, I, I imagine most kids were, I, I don't know, doing who knows what after their parents put them to bed, they'd go and flip the light on in their room and stay up a little bit later, maybe doing whatever. <laughs> For me, it was Lego. So I distinctly remember I had this towel in my bedroom that I'd shove underneath the crack in my bedroom door <laughs> so I could turn the light on and my parents wouldn't know I was still awake. So I think What are you probably, doing in there? Nothing, Mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think probably it started uh, at a quite early age. I love you know building things and creating things and electronics has always been a passion of mine. So believe it or not, when I was a kid, we didn't have computers. I think I was probably around 10 or 11 that I got my first computer and it was such an expensive piece of hardware that I wouldn't have even dared to take that thing apart. Once I was around 17 or 18, that's when I started to, you know, tinker a little bit more with that sort of stuff, take electronics apart, experiment, and start to build some some other cooler things. So, yeah, I think probably there's been a lot of things in my past that have ultimately uh, led to today. Uh, One of the cooler ones was actually building a goal light. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Budweiser yeah. Goal Light. Yeah, at one point I had well, built one of those. Not, every, not everybody listening will be. So the Goal Light in a hockey game, when someone gets the puck in the net, there's a guy sits behind there, and his only job is if he sees the puck go in the net, he flips a switch, and there's a red light 
at the top of the glass comes on to indicate that the puck went in the net. So if anybody missed it, then... So Budweiser made this really cool thing that automatically lights up when your hockey team scores. And at one point, they were at such a premium. People were paying like four to $500 for them. So I couldn't get my hands on one of them, nor did I really want to have a, a Budweiser goal light <laughs> sitting in my living room. So I decided to make one of my own. So yeah, I've always been... I've always loved um, technology and electronics and... Um, yeah, I suppose it all sort of led to this day where, where I heard about this problem and had an opportunity to actually build something that, that would really be used across the industry. And was this the business that you were in? Like, did you, are you a, like a computer engineer? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say a computer engineer. I was doing automation programming prior to this, and that's when I heard okay. about the opportunity to, to build this sensor. Yeah, so that's the background that I come from. Okay, so your like formal education is in what? Uh, so believe it or not, my formal education is in uh, youth ministry. I was a youth pastor at my church for many years. Sort of one of those things, I came to a crossroads in my life in my early 20s, and I was like, do I want to do this and work with young people? Because I really do to this day, still love that. Or do I go the technology route? And I decided ultimately that I wanted to help and work with young people, and I did that for many years while pursuing my passion as a an electronic sort of guru and uh, programmer. Uh, and that was always something on the other side. And at some point in time, I decided, you know what, I, I do want to do some electronic stuff as well and got a bunch of certifications and ultimately found myself in automation programming as well. Is that like a hard left turn in your life or like a natural sort of progression? Um, no, I would say that for me, those are two things that I'm very passionate about. I've always sort of been one who, who wants to invest back in the community and in the lives of young people. And this sort of was an opportunity for me a couple of years back about seven years ago now to sort of pursue both of those passions. So I'm still heavily involved at my church. That's something that I really care about a lot and in investing in the lives of young people. And now I'm officially able to do both of those um, interests in my life. So um, I got all the certifications required, got into automation programming, and, and really have been enjoying that up until the point that we had this opportunity to build this sensor as well. Okay, so automation programming, but not necessarily anything to do with agriculture at that point. That's right, yep. Do you have a background in agriculture? Did you grow up on a farm or in an ag community? I grew up in the, the thriving metropolis of Hayesville, just south of uh, New Hamburg. Um, and so, yeah, I lived in the country. It was a pretty glorious childhood. I got to play in the river, and we had a swamp on our property and a forest. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer, and so we, we spent a lot of time on the farm, and I helped on farms. And just to clarify, like, so Hayesville, like, that's an area that's 15 minutes from Kitchener-Waterloo, which yeah. is a tech hub, but it's about as backwoods sticks as you can get and be that close to the city. It's a village of probably about two to 300 people. We live right. on the outside yeah. of it. So, yeah, it was it was a great childhood. I definitely um, did not grow up in the city, and I spent a lot of time on farms. I was not a farmer's kid growing up, but, yeah, I, I certainly had an exposure to um, the world of agriculture, and actually it feels a lot like a homecoming now, um, getting back into agriculture. It's been uh, a great experience. The people um, in, in agriculture are just amazing, and, and it's been a, a blessing to get to know a lot of people in this sphere, for sure. Okay, so you then built a team for, for Bin Sentry. I would imagine a lot of those people don't have an ag background as well. Yeah, that's true. It's been a really great learning experience for all of us. Um, most of the, the team that we've assembled to uh, to build and market our product and, and push the company forward have come from sort of tech backgrounds. And so, yeah, we've really prioritized sitting down with people in the industry and, and spending a lot of time listening and, and making an effort to understand the challenges that people face so that we can better address them. But you are correct. Yeah, most of us come from, from tech backgrounds, um, and so it's been definitely an awesome experience to kind of get back into this and, and learn. 
And has it been a struggle at all to help people understand sort of the needs of farmers or does that even really matter for your process? Like, does the guy that's sitting doing the programming, does he need to understand what happens on a farm? Yeah, see that, yeah, that's a great question. He, he does, in fact, need to know that. And so that's, uh, I think, a big part of the reason why we've placed such a high um, priority on actually sitting down and talking to people in the industry, whether that's, you know, like a, a layered nutritionist or a, a truck driver or a farmer themselves. We have a lot of people in our network who talk to you on a regular basis just to make sure that we're really understanding this challenge from the top all the way down to the bottom and, and so that we can adequately address those different uh, pain points that exist in the industry at present and develop a sensor that really feels like something that solves the problem. For us, at Wallenstein Feeds. I mean, our goal here is to have information and increase our efficiency. So for instance, if we have a broiler customer and maybe we are going to that farm eight times in the course of a of one flock of chickens, and if we know exactly how much feed is left in a bin when we go, how much room there is, how much we can take, maybe we can reduce that number of trips, say from eight down to six. You know, we increase our our trucking efficiency, we reduce the number of trips on the farm, which is good for biosecurity. It's less of a hassle. We have more accurate measurement of how much feed is in on our withdrawal feed. So we end up with sort of less feed left over at the end of the flock. There's just a whole bunch of, of good reasons. Now, for us to do that, we need a really high level of accuracy. We feel, well, you tell me where the, where the system is in place and, and has it always been as accurate as it is now? Yeah, great question. So using a LiDAR sensor, uh, as I mentioned, we're able to get a really, really high degree of accuracy on the volume of feed left in the bin. And that is, to be clear, what we're measuring. So when we do an install, our installers very precisely measure all of the different parameters of the bin. So we'll measure the height of the cone, the radius of the cone, how many rings are in the bin, the height of each ring. We, we basically are able to reconstruct a, a 3D model of that bin that's very, very accurate. So we know then at that point exactly how many cubic feet fit inside of a bin. And then when our LiDAR sensor looks down inside of it, we're able to tell exactly how many cubic feet of product is left in the bin. Uh, we can take that a step further and turn that into tonnage if we have a good sense of what the bulk density of that product in the mm -hmm. bin is, meaning the, the weight per cubic foot. So yeah, at present, our volume calculations are usually within 1% or less, which is very accurate. And then you have come up that an actual, this is a neat feature that's a recent development, the calibration feature. When somebody gets feed in their bin, they can actually calibrate the cubic feet. Exactly. So if, if we know how much feed was delivered to that particular bin, when we register a bin refill on farm, you can go into that bin, press calibrate, and what it will do is it'll say, okay, we've seen, you know, that 500 cubic feet have been added to the bin and we know that that weight of that product was you know five tons or whatever uh, and therefore we can figure out what the density right. of that product was and calibrate the bin from that point onwards there's the actual hardware component to it and the, the process on the farm of making it work but then there is a whole bunch of software and interpretation things that are done behind the scenes. Absolutely, and that, that really is a core to the uh, Internet of Things sort of ethos of, of building a yeah. system out. Is It's not just hardware, it really is about software. So I would say if we had to describe our company, we're probably about a 20% hardware company and 80% software. Because, I mean, it is really good, it's really valuable, but if, if all you're doing is displacing where the work happens and now you're giving you know this huge amount of bulk raw data to someone at a feed mill and saying, okay, now interpret this and figure out how to use it. You're not really making the process more efficient. You're just changing where the work is happening. And so in order for an Internet of Things product to really be valuable, to mm -hmm. interpret 
the data that's coming in, or at least help your customers to interpret it, and then glean some insights from that that actually enables them to be more efficient. Um, so a great example of how we try and do that is we are able to see exactly how many cubic feet are leaving a bin on a daily basis. And even when you see an accelerated disappearance in feed, like what you would see on a broiler farm, we have a, an algorithm that's watching that disappearance, and it's constantly updating itself to ultimately let a feed mill know exactly how many days they have until that feed bin is empty. Now, that's a valuable metric that enables right. a feed mill now to plan their production schedules and, and make sure that, you know, they're going to have feed bins running empty out there and make sure that they're not making those extra trips to the farm, as you described. Uh, so if we can deliver that type of data that's already been interpreted and we're giving them something in its final form that they can then act on, that makes the entire system as a whole far more valuable. Uh, and so that really does play a key role in building a, an Internet of Things ecosystem uh, from end to end. So you can't just be you know, delivering raw data. You have to take it a step further and actually deliver. I want to ask, Randall, you started this company. You had, I'm guessing, a, a good, stable job doing process control kind of stuff. Yep. At some point, you had to make the decision to leave that nice, stable, sort of comfortable career and jump out on your own into a company that didn't really have anything to sell yet. It was definitely a leap of faith. There was a lot of uh, of contemplation around whether or not that was a wise idea. In fact, I think probably the impetus for actually finally doing that uh, was in April of 2016, if memory serves me correctly, and it was at the uh, the poultry show uh, in London. So I'm not sure if, if you would have been at that window, but a lot of people from Wallenstein <laughs> were. And I was sick as a dog that day, uh, and it was my brother-in-law that convinced me to go along with him to the poultry show. Uh, my brother-in-law is a poultry farmer here in Ontario as well. So okay. we went along together to the poultry show in London, and he said, Randall, you've got something that you need to tell feed mills about. I pulled my butt out of bed that morning and, and went to the poultry show and kind of made the rounds. I was talking to people from Wallentine, and I think that's when I really first um, realized that, that there really was a lot of potential in this product, and there was some legitimate need for it as well. Um, so we scheduled a meeting. I went to meet with Wallenstein, and uh, the meeting went very well. Wallenstein let me know uh, that they wanted to move forward with the pilot project, and at that point I sort of made the decision that this is worth taking a shot at. Uh, I let my boss know that I was going to you know, take at least one month to give this a shot, and, uh, and I just sort of took the leap from there, and uh, the rest is history. But certainly there was, there was a, a lot of uncertainty around that first move, but it's, it's proven to pay itself off now. When you got to the point where you actually built your first prototype, how many different versions have there been to get to the commercial one that's being installed today? About 20 different uh, revisions <laughs> of the hardware to get to this point in, in, in different levels of the hardware. So, you know, we've changed the, the microprocessor, we've changed the community technology, we've changed the center, um, all to, to work towards the, the final solution, which we, we have today. And were you building these early prototypes, like, in your workshop in your garage? Yeah, absolutely. That's typically the way it works with hardware. You, you start by building proofs of concept, uh, and those are usually pretty rough pieces of technology just to prove that this is all going to work and test different concepts and, and different pieces of electronics. You do build them by hand. And then gradually, as you get more and more confidence in the uh, hardware, you, you revise to a point that you're ready to start uh, having these things uh, built professionally. And uh, eventually, you, you work your way towards a, a finished piece of hardware. And it's been interesting from my standpoint, Randall, because I, ha I wasn't involved sort of early on in the development stuff. I got brought in, you know, when it was getting closer to figuring out how we're, we're going to use it. And I remember the first meeting that, that you and I were in together, and I remember uh, 
I didn't pull any punches and ask some tough questions about the product and how it worked. Was I a, a complete dick about it at all? Oh, yeah, without question. I think every interaction <laughs> since then has confirmed that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding, completely, obviously. Um, no, I, I actually think asking those hard questions is a really, really important part of the process because we have to be doing the same thing. Anytime that you're building a piece of hardware, uh, those are the questions that you need to ask to ensure that you're going to be able to, to build a product that lasts out there in the field long term. And, and I think, Randall, I think it's been... It's been fun to kind of follow along with the development of this, and I'm, I'm excited about the opportunities for our customers and for farmers sort of across North America and for your company in general. I think it's really cool. I want to go back and I want to ask about the Lego stuff. What's the, the most outrageous, complicated thing you've ever built out of Lego? What is the coolest thing I've ever built out of Lego? Yeah, well, the biggest sort of most elaborate project you've ever done. Oh, with Lego. yeah. Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, so when I was a kid, they had these Lego setups. Uh, it was like a pneumatic set, and I don't remember the exact name of it, but it basically came with these uh, little rubber tubes and, and pumps and uh, actuators and all kinds of other really cool <laughs> things. So uh, I think some of the most complex and elaborate creations that I made probably involved those setups, uh, little tractors that would have, like, lifting, you know, like, uh, shovels and uh, moving up and down parts and things that would open and close. So pretty fun. And and they were very cool too, because you had to make sure that range of motion was good or else the pipes would blow off. It was a really good experiment in, in pneumatics when I was a kid. Right. So your mom learned pretty early on to put one of those little tablecloth craft mat things under your project before you started building. Exactly. Yeah. I think kids miss some of that today with computers and tablets and things like that. They don't do as much building with their hands, maybe. And I think that that's something that, that we want to encourage for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, I think it's probably going to change as uh, technology evolves. Probably kids are going to be tinkering more with electronics and other things. Hopefully, that's something that I'd like to see. I try and encourage that type of creativity in my own kids. And then who knows, maybe some kid that's tinkering with Lego today will develop the next great technology that makes something like bin sentry obsolete. Absolutely. That's the hope. <laughs> but hopefully that kid is only five years old right now. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, Randall, uh, like I said, it's been it's been fun following along with the progress on bin sentry and getting to know you a little bit. And I appreciate you taking a bit of time and talking with me about what you guys are up to. It's my pleasure, Wendell. Thanks again for having me. All right, we'll talk soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.